I'm going to talk to you today about shame because I am born in a Genesis 3 world. I am an expert on shame. Again, not from a degree, but because I am born in a Genesis 3 world. If you want to get to know me a little bit, after watching the first Fast and the Furious movie, I decided to put red underglow on my Sunfire coupe. Because that'll make it go faster. (laughs) Thankfully, sanctification is progressive. (laughs) At a low time in my marriage, I tried to sign up to the United States Navy without talking to my wife, (laughs) who found the recruitment paperwork. I quickly invested in a better couch to sleep on. And Toronto, we're Leaf fans. Don't we know shame well? (laughs) Shame is a language that is learned. And maybe you come from a culture where shame is a very high currency that is used against you and on you. We read from Genesis 3. Understand that in Genesis 1 and 2, shame has no place in Genesis 1 and 2. Shame is not God's design. Shame only enters in Genesis 3 after sin enters. Shame can so often manifest in the believer because of what you have done, because of what you have witnessed, or perhaps because of what has been done to you. And you're going to hear today that shame has really three drivers towards one goal. It's going to distort your view of God. It's going to distort your view of yourself and others. And it's going to distort your calling. And the whole point of shame is to take you to a place of isolation and defeat. Now, we've already heard Pastor Julian read through three. So before we dive in, would you pray with me, Grace Fellowship? Lord, we are calling upon the God here who shames shame. We are calling upon the one who truly owns truth for all of eternity. I do not pretend to know who is in front of me right now. I do not know what these people, these brothers and sisters in the faith of mine have gone through in their life histories. And so God, protect eloquence of tongue or charisma or finely crafted points, Lord, what we have come here today is to grow in a knowledge of the text and the God of the text. Would you break chains today by the power of your Holy Spirit for your glory? In Christ's name, amen. My first point is that shame distorts our view of God. Read with me verses eight through 10. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I have commanded you not to eat? Understand in Genesis 1 and 2, 
Adam and Eve's relationship with God is only perfect. Perfect communication, perfect intimacy, perfect vulnerability. It was a relationship that had no knowledge of any negative emotions or experience. Think of that for a second. I've never had that. And they only know perfection in Genesis 1 and 2. And then sin enters. And thus enters shame. And shame drives Adam to hide. For the first time, the sound of the Lord, not just merely his presence, the sound of his presence coming drives him away. Adam is now running from the very thing he's meant for. Do you see it? Do you see how deeply shame is speaking to Adam? And it's whispering to the soul of Adam. You see that perfect one coming. Do you see him coming? It's better for you to pull out, to run and to hide than to be near him. You see that perfect father? You see that perfect creator? He will not understand what you have done. He will not forgive you. He will only reject you, is the whispers that shame says. And then shame goes, Adam, run and go hide in the woods. Shame makes men and women spiritual runners because it distorts our view of the character and nature of who God is. Think of the shame that you have experienced in your life. You ever felt unworthy to go to the Lord? Ever felt like you couldn't go to the Lord because of that thing you did or that thing that was done to you because of what you've been through? You know that thing that you did that nobody knows about? Yeah, that's the sin that's too far gone. You know that, that abuse that you've experienced that has just made you wounded and dirty? That's too far broken. Pull back. See, shame doesn't just tell you, oh, you've got dirt on you. Shame goes, you are dirty. Do you hear the language difference between the two? Shame speaks directly to identity, worth, and value. Shame will, over time and repetition and faulty thinking, it's going to distort your view of who God is to the point where you feel like you can't even approach him because of the thing that's happened to you or the thing that you have done. And so, one of the greatest designs ever, as the believer, it isolates you from your shepherd. But shame's smarter than just that. Shame distorts your view of the shepherd, and it's going to destroy, distort your view of who you are, and it's going to distort your view of others. Look at verse 7 with me for a second. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve see each other 
But in Genesis 3, they see each other and themselves from a completely different light. If you go back one chapter to chapter 2, verse 25, it says that the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. And one chapter later, they go from naked and unashamed to naked and shamed. They see themselves and they see each other and their response is now to pull back and to cover up. They see their differences between each other and their response is now put barriers between me and them. Nakedness, their nakedness with this shame, it makes Adam and Eve clothe themselves and run from the Lord and this nakedness takes Adam and Eve and now they are clothing each other from each other. Now they've distanced themselves from God with the barriers of the woods, and now they've distanced each other with the barrier of the fig leaves from one another. Oh, and these, these fig leaves, they're like mini saviors that can only fail. Maybe this leaf will be enough. Maybe this leaf can change me. Maybe this leaf can make me better than I actually am. Maybe this leaf will protect me from them seeing the real me. Maybe this leaf can take the things that I don't like about me and hopefully it might make me likable. No human being ever stops at the point of shame. They're always doing something with their shame. And we are designed by God because of the grace that he has given us that we can go to him. But so often in the heart and in the life of Matt King, I specialize in these fig leaves. And it's so easy to think of these things that are destructive. You can put up drugs, addiction, alcohol. But unfortunately, even in Christian culture, there are certain fig leaves that we still elevate as great. Your career. Maybe if you just had that job and that title and that raise and that income, maybe you might just be enough. Perhaps it might be your spouse. Ah, if I just have this person, then I'll be. Or the adverse, you better perform so that I could be. Maybe it's your kids. And you're taking all this frustration and this hurt and this shame and you're projecting it onto them for their performance because your kid's making it to the NHL. Never met a parent in Canada whose kid is not going to the NHL. Spoiler alert, they're not probably statistically going to the NHL. They're going to grow up with a performance complex and they're going to see me as a counselor. So thank you for the job security. I'll give you guys a discount. I like you guys as a church. But we're trying to constantly add to ourselves. So hopefully it will numb the shame. It will numb the pain. And hopefully it's going to cure it. And you know what? Shame often within a marriage... It manifests itself through two ways. I call it high pride and low pride. High pride is the person who is in awe of who they think they are. And to cover up that shame and that insecurity, they puff themselves up 
And if you wanna know if you're married to this person, they get really mad at you when you don't see them the way they see themselves. Or there's another way called low pride. Low pride essentially is a human being who is in awe of what they're not. And so they just constantly come under this submission of like, oh, if I just make this person happy, then I'm gonna be okay. If, if I just have this one individual in my life and I perform and I do everything they want and they're okay with me, then I'll be okay with me and then God will be okay with me. Both forms are forms of pride because they're really in awe of yourself. One is of what you think you are and the other is in awe of what you're not. And so here we start to see this shame coming in. It distorts the nature and character of the Lord. So I pull back. It distorts how I see myself and how I see others. So I now either lord myself over other people for my ego fix, or I submit myself to other people in a way that I'm just chained to the bondage of their happiness in me. But then understand how shame distorts our surroundings. So in Genesis chapter one, you see something called the cultural mandate. It's found in verses 28 through 30. I'll read it with you. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing. That moves on earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. And you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to have every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on earth, everything that has breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And so here in Genesis 1, there's this beautiful calling that is, is placed in Genesis 2 where man and woman have, have an authority over the world to go, to subdue, and to cultivate the earth that they have been entrusted with. By Genesis 3, they've abandoned their spiritual authority and now only are they not leading, they're running to and into the very things that they're called to cultivate. Instead of working their surroundings in their calling from God, their surroundings are now leading them. Every believer, man and woman, is called into the cultural mandate. It is a good work. It is a holy calling from above. And shame has a way of pulling us into the very areas that we're called to mandate over and now it feels like it has a mandate over us. We're called to lead in our work, and suddenly now our work is leading us. The thing that we're called to tame and subdue is now subduing us. And God called Adam and Eve to glorify God in the leading and cultivating of their surroundings. And now they're using the very same surroundings to run and hide from God. And shame, like it, it preaches to you and it makes you run, but it doesn't make a lot of sense because like Adam and Eve's idea was like, hey, so we have this all-knowing, all-present God. I got a good idea. Let's go hide. <laughs> like stop and think about that like thought process for a second. Shame will make you a runner, but it does not make you an intelligent runner. 
And so here we see that now Adam and Eve, they've forgotten their position with God. They've forgotten their position with each other. And now they've forgotten the authority that they've been given to God into what they're called into. And shame makes Adam and Eve runners. And they run to the very thing they're called to lead and cultivate. And make no mistake, sin and the shame that birthed from sin in just one short passage has changed their view of God, their view and understanding of themselves, their view of others, and their view of their surroundings. Imagine living under this yoke for decades. And I, I, I use this imagine. Some of you don't have to imagine in front of me. You know. Because you have yoked yourself to the lies and weight of shame. Maybe it's that thing that happened to you in childhood. Maybe it's that thing that happened in later years of life. And as I'm preaching these three points, you have to pause and go, this feels heavy. I haven't seen one hand raised in worship yet for these three points. I'm a little hurt, but that's all right. Here you start to see many people go to the grave with this weight. And it is a weight that God has not called his sons and daughters to live under. You want to see how the gospel enters shame? You want to know how the gospel specializes in shaming shame? It's point four, and it's this. God enters our shame. Look at me, uh, with me, in verses 9 through 11. But the Lord God called to the man, and he said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Stop and examine this passage with me for a second. Who is calling out to who? Adam is not calling out to God. Adam is only in the midst of running and hiding. And in the presence of sin, in the presence of shame, it is God himself that is initiating dialogue. It is God that is calling out to Adam. And God that is coming out to sinful man and shameful man. And it's not man coming to God. Make no mistake, having an all-knowing God, it's not like he was like catching up to Adam and Eve and was caught off guard with what happened. He fully knew everything that had happened. And in his grace and his mercy, he's now moving towards those who are his. And he starts this dialogue. Where are you? God knows Adam is not where he's supposed to be. And in God's affection, he's bringing Adam back. And then he goes on to say, who told you that you were naked? And God is now starting a dialogue over the very areas that shame is causing Adam and Eve to run. Remember when I said that shame tells you hide, run. God will not understand and he will not help. Look at chapter three, verse 21 with me. 
in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of sin, and in the midst of shame. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. God made a provision over their sin that was better than any fig leaf they could manufacture on their own. So God makes, in Genesis 3, he makes a sacrifice of an animal to meet his people's needs. You, here today, if you have sin, if you struggle with shame, you have been given something so much more glorious than an animal skin. You have been given the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And maybe you've been saved for a long time hearing the gospel is life-giving. Maybe you're here because you're just here with a friend. Let me explain the gospel for you in a second. It's that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, came and he made himself a, a man that he would pursue those who are his creation, you, me, sons and daughters, made in his image. And he sees that we're far off because of sin. We, we cannot go to the Father because the Father is holy. And Jesus Christ in his grace comes and he takes your sin off of you and he puts himself on the cross with your sin. At the same time, he gives you his perfection. And three days later, he rises again and now has victory over sin and over death. And now you are his. That is the covering that is offered for you here today in this seat if you do not know Jesus Christ. And that is the coding, if you do know Jesus Christ, that is over you here today in this seat. You have been given a perfect covering. You have been given a sufficient covering. Your covering in shame must never be what you have done or your attempts to undo it. Your covering from shame must never be the thing that has happened to you or the lies that accompany it. Your covering must be Jesus. It is sufficient. It is enough. And it's not just a covering. It's a covering that comes with a narrative that is sung over you. You are mine. I made you. That's not how I see you. I knit you in your mother's womb. There's nothing that can add or take away from the value, worth, and dignity because you are already made in my image and I've restored you to me. Careful believing the language of shame for this reason. Shame will often hide its true indictments. Because if you really believe that you are dirty, broken, and incomplete, shame makes it sound like it's a really big statement against you. Shame is actually indicting your creator. You are less than, therefore the one who made you makes subpar work. You are dirty, he makes dirty things. Now, you would never say that out loud, 
But that's the true language of shame is it makes an indictment, not just merely against you. It makes an indictment against your, your creator via you. But Jesus specializes in shaming shame. Look at Jesus' very first miracle. It's found in the second chapter of John, if you want to go there with me, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, 1 through 11. This is Jesus' first miracle. And it reads, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana and in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother, said, uh, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Pause. Wouldn't, it wouldn't counsel you to address your mother like that, but we're going to let Jesus do it because he's perfect. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there was uh, six stone of water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20, to 30 gall- 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to his servants, fill the, jars, um, fill the jars with water. And they came and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and when the people have drunk freely, then they pour pour the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Isn't it unbelievable? Jesus' first miracle is an act of protecting a couple from shame. For that couple to run out of wine historically at this point would have been a disrespect and a dishonor. And Jesus' first miracle is, I'm going to protect this couple from shame. Now I know I'm talking to a Baptist church here, so I'm sure you'd prefer it if he turned the wine to water, but hey, (laughs) it's the other way around. Now I'm non-denominational, so I get to enjoy this miracle. If you're wondering what non-denominational is, it just means I have commitments issues. So here you start to see this. He didn't just protect the couple from shame. He highly honored them. Do you see that? He didn't just restore the same wine that was there before. He made it greater. The gospel cure from shame is honor. So again, here, it's like, hey, start with the good wine, wait for like everybody to like relax, all that kind of stuff, and then as the night goes on, pour the cheaper stuff. Modern day context, start with the nice bottles and then go to that box that you find in the aisle. Don't act like you haven't been down that aisle. I've been there too, okay? I've seen some of you, right? And so normally... Normally you go from like this high quality down to this low quality and and that's how it goes. And Jesus goes, you know what? I'm gonna honor them so abundantly. Not only am I gonna protect them from shame, I'm gonna take their best stuff and I'm gonna hyper honor them by creating something even greater than what they had on their own. Jesus's first miracle was protection from shame. The gospel cure from shame is honor. And I love this. Jesus Christ loves to enter people's shame. I want you to know he loves to enter yours. Throughout the New Testament, you see Jesus interact and 
there's this guttural reaction that you can see that happens in him when he sees somebody stuck in shame. Something swells up in him where he just moves towards them in empathy and compassion. And every single time he moves towards them with empathy and compassion, he honors them. Culture wouldn't honor them. Most of their towns wouldn't honor them. Their own priests wouldn't honor them. Yet the perfect son of God would move towards those who are shame-ridden and just shame-bound. And he would move towards them in love and gentleness and empathy and would touch you with honor. Christ loves entering people of shame. But how does the gospel honor us? If you head over to Ephesians 2, 4 through 10, we start to see that we have been given a better type of wine today. His name is Jesus Christ. And far greater than any fig leaf, far greater than any religious effort, far greater than what I have done, far greater than what has been done to me, hear how the Lord honors us in his grace, which points to his glory. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is of the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no man can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Verse five, you wanna see honor in action? Verse five, he takes your death and he gives you life. Verse six, he takes us out of the woods and he raises us up with him and seats us next to him. Verse seven, for all of eternity, we are gonna be learning of the riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 10, you are a beautiful display of his workmanship. And verse 10 goes on to say, created for a good work. Did you see how shame distorts our view of who God is, our view of ourselves, our view of others, and our view of our calling? And here through honor, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in Ephesians 2, it's now restored our view of God. We are made alive in him. We are seated with him. Our view of ourselves has now changed because we have a new identity. We have a new name. And now we get to come out of the woods and now boldly go on mission all because Jesus called out to you. How has the gospel honored you? It's through Jesus. You have a new name, a new identity, a new position. You are now a recipient of immeasurable riches. Your workmanship called to a good work. And please hear me, you ready? Shame has no authority over your new name. Shame has no power over your new identity. Shame cannot access your new position in Christ. 
Shame cannot unemploy you from what you have now been called into. So my question is this. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Are you in the woods of shame? Are you covering up in front of God? Are you covering up in front of others? Do you feel like you're locked in the casket of shame? Where are you? Because today, in your seat now, there's a different calling. Have you ever heard the Lord call out your name like he did Adam's? What's holding you back? Ephesians 2. There's nothing that's been done to you or there's nothing that you could do that could add or take away from what Christ has already offered you. If you're in the woods of shame and you do not know Christ... When he calls you, where are you? It's a safe voice. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're here today in the woods of shame and he's calling you, where are you? Where are you? From the coding you already have of the blood of Jesus Christ, it's safe to dialogue back and allow Christ today by the power of who he is, let him shame your shame. And let him draw you to a new place with a new name, a new position, and a new calling.